We thank you, Lord, that you're so available to us in times of need. We thank you and praise you. You've been faithful for generations, for thousands of generations. And that when your people need you the most, you surprise us with your presence. You surprise us with your goodness. You amaze us with your power. We thank you this morning for stories like Jeremy's. How crazy it is, Lord, that you're mindful of a little boy in a little town in a cornfield. How we thank you that you're mindful of seven billion people. Mindful of how many hairs are on each one of our heads. And you love so much. So we acknowledge our great need for you. And we celebrate your great love for us. Would you join me please in praying the prayer that Jesus taught his brothers and sisters and friends? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping. If what is happening in your home is at all like what's happening in this room, there's a unique sense of the Lord's presence. About three months ago, we began talking about flourishing in exile, and I showed a video called The Way of the Exile by the Bible Project. And to come full circle, I'd like to show it again to remind us where we've been talking, what we've been focusing on these last 12 weeks. Would you please view the video, uh, The Way of the Exile? In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. 
Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So I've watched that now for 12 consecutive weeks, and I took the phrase, ideas of loyalty and subversion, and I've been putting them together over these last 12 weeks with the phrase, we are in, but not of the world. And what I've been trying to do together with you is to look at Jeremiah 29 and 1 Peter, and trying to understand how can we be in, but not of this world. And how I'd like to end today is with three metaphors. I'd like to end with this, this 12-week series with the ideas of salt and light and a foundation, if I could. But before I do, I'm going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 12, but let me give you a background first. And let me just stop. I'm going to just be real personal for a second. One of the things that I've been so interested in 2020, if I could have a big umbrella of mercy, 
I think one of the things I've been observing in 2020 is who we actually are as people is being exposed. The depths of what is often hidden in light of all the challenges of this year has been peeled away. And what really has been present in us is beginning to become more obvious. And among some of us, I sense the goodness, the beauty of the kingdom of God. And others, sadly, I must say, I sense um, not so much. And so as I end this series, what I'd like to do is remind you of what Jesus came to give us. In, my, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins to his ministry by saying this, repent, which is to turn, metanoia, or to change your thinking, because the kingdom of God is near. Chapter 4, verse 17. In chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, what does Jesus do? He shows them what the kingdom of God is near looks like. And so he begins to heal and set free and offers a blessing to all kinds of people. But remember when I talked about this one year ago? Do you remember who those people were? They were called in derision the Anavim, the lowlifes, the marginal, the exiles, the people on the fringes. And Jesus comes and says to those people who are on the fringes in exile, the kingdom of God is near. Let me show you, let me show you, let me show you. And when he's done, he takes them to a mountainside and he begins to talk and describe what this kingdom near looks like. So having said that, I would like to look at this with you with chapter 5, 3 through 12. I have two translations. One is the NIV on each slide, each verse NIV, and below it is the message. And then I want to give you just a brief comment on each one. So can we go with chapter 5, verse 3? Here we go from the NIV. Jesus says to the Anavim, the people on the exiles, the margins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom and in Matthew, the literal translation is of the heavens. Now, the message translates it like this. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And this is what I wrote in my notes to myself. The king, look at the verses. The kingdom of heaven makes a difference for the poor in spirit. To those who are in a broken condition far beyond their capacity and resources to bear. Chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The message translation, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. And I wrote, the kingdom of heaven makes a difference for those who mourn. Those who are acu acutely aware of and grieved by the world as it is and how far the world is from what God intended it. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In the translation from the message, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you'll find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And I translate it like this, it makes a difference for the meek, those who are in quotation marks small, and surrendered to God out of a profound sense of their smallness. Next verse, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The message translates it, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. 
He's food and drink in the, most, in the best meal you ever eat. And I wrote, it makes a difference for those who hunger and thirst for rightness, for those who crave for things to be made right in their lives and the world all around them. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. The message translates it, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves being cared for. I wrote, it makes a difference for the merciful, those who are generous in deeds of deliverance on behalf of others, in bondage to guilt and pain and need. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The message translated, translates it, you're blessed when you get in your world inside, you get inside your world, your mind and your heart, when that is put right then you can see God in the outside world. Let me just stop now. This to me is one of the key verses in the key passage, Matthew 5, 6, 7, for followers of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I love this translation. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the inside world. And what I wrote is this, it makes all the difference for the pure in heart. Those whose desires, even desperation, is for God undiluted. And what I'm observing in our culture today is, is, is whatever is happening in this year, so much is being stripped away and what is undiluted has opportunity to rise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God I don't have, I didn't ask the family for this, for permission to do this, but I think it's okay because I know Jesse and Sarah. So yesterday was Camden's funeral. And there were a number of us talking before and uh, there was a great deal of emotion. And one uh, precious young person just shared with a purity of heart that was just incredible, just incredible. And as she shared with me, I was mindful of my history with Matt and Jesse, uh, Jesse and uh, Sarah. And after I'd made a few comments, I'm talking about pure in heart, this young woman's comments to me so touched me, I wanted to figure out a way to say to Jesse and Sarah in the death of their son that a friend of Camden's who was pure in heart was very mindful of them. And so I just looked at Jesse and at Sarah. And for those of you who don't know, Camden is the third of their sons to have died. And so I did this. Jesse, Sarah. That young girl friend of Camden's spoke to me of a purity of heart. And through this young woman's eyes, all of a sudden I could remember, I could remember how the kingdom of God has come to a family in such deep grief. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called the children of God. Peterson translates it, you're blessed when you can show people how to co cooperate instead of compete or fight. Ooh, look at that. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate 
instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. And I wrote, it makes all the difference for peacemakers, those who are contending for God's wholeness, God's peace, in our broken and angry and fragmented world. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And below it, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into the kingdom, into God's kingdom. And the next one, please. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what I wrote is this. As we align our lives with the kingdom of God, we become a salt and light in the world. But we're only salty and enlightening in the world. Listen to this. To the degree that the nature of Christ our King is in us as it is described in the Beatitudes. I'd like to talk about salt now. One of the three metaphors I'd like to bring to you, if I may. And that's found in chapter 5, 13 through 17, and the scripture will be on the screen. So please hear these words of the Lord. You are, salt, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May I use two metaphors, salt and light, for just a couple minutes. And I can make this really clear. And, and so interesting to me. So often the Beatitudes are understood. And for our, our, our guests on the... On the uh, on television, the internet. I'm talking to the worship leaders here, so just know I'm not talking to myself. But I kind of talking to myself. Um, the Beatitudes are often seen as something we have to aspire to. Can I remind you that Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the best description I know of for a follower of Jesus is to be a description of who we are, not a prescription of what we do. We are to be salt we are to be light. How does that happen? It is to be deeply, deeply connected with Jesus. So let me talk about Saul for just a minute. And I, I just, I'm a city kid. And I don't know much about lots of stuff, especially farmers, chemicals, commodities. So I read a book this week entitled Salt, A World History by Mark Kolansky. Let me read a couple things for you. Salt is so common so easy to obtain and so inexpensive that we have forgotten that until 100 years ago, salt was one of the most sought-after commodities, listen to this, in all human history. For thousands of years, people were not paid with money or goods. You paid with salt. The soldiers were paid with salt. Newborn babies were rubbed in salt. We can't live without salt. Salt deficiency causes headaches and then nausea. And if salt deprivation continues, we will die. So Jesus says to these anavim, 
these people who are just the nobodies. They're on the mar- they are just on the margins of culture. He says to those people, I have told you the kingdom of the heavens is here. Chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, 23 through 25. I'm going to show you what it looks like. And then he says to these people who are losers, nobodies on the margins. They have no voice, no place in culture. He says to them, you are the salt here. Now, interesting, the Greek instruction goes like this. this I'm going to translate literally. The Greek instruction. You, you alone, you are the salt of the earth. It's, 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 it's staccato. It's strong. It's really strong. And these people are going, what are you talking about? Us? Yes, you, and you alone, just you, you are the, why? Because the kingdom of the heavens is near, and the kingdom of the heavens is in you. Therefore, you need to be, no, not need to be, you are salt. So I'm going to read a couple more things about salt. New Testament scholars debate exactly what Jesus meant. Let me just make it real simple. Salt is good, and salt is different. Salt is good. Salt is good. So in COVID, do our coworkers see our good works and give glory to God for how we are in our workplace, in our school? Do our, do our, do our fellow students, do others give glory to God because they see us being salty? How about this? Do friends and coworkers and neighbors find us attractive and listening and flavorful and compelling? In other words, do we reflect the person of Jesus. Are we salty? Now, I'm, I'm just point ahead. What did Jesus say for those who aren't salty? Well, in fact, let me show you. I told you that salt is used for many things. Salt is also used to cast out demons. So on Saturdays when I cleanse the whole building with holy water and with salt, this is consecrated holy salt. And I walk around places where I sense there's evil and demonic and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You throw salt because salt carries power. It carries the kingdom. And what did Jesus say? If you're not really salty, but we're just going to throw it down and we're going to walk on it because it's just going to become roadkill. It's just going to be something to walk on. But you and you alone, you, 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 who, who, Exiles, you, you alone, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are to be compelling. You are to be attractive. You are to be, who? You, us. Well, let's go on a little farther. Do people see the character of Jesus outlined in our lives? Are we poor in spirit, meaning humble? Last week, I tried to make so clear. First Peter says in chapter five, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, let me take you back now, 10 weeks. Remember that passage in chapter 2, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15? Be holy in all you do. Be loving, be salty, be poor of the Spirit. Let the kingdom of Jesus be so in us that it just comes out. So you, you alone are the salt of the earth. There's something about how we live needs to affect all kinds of people. How about this? Are we committed to living as peacemakers? Do we have, have we become salty, offering flavor to a bland and a fearful and angry culture? And then I wrote this. If people in our culture are suspicious, cynical, bored, or frightened by Christians, maybe we need to say, Lord, would you re-saltify me? Would you fill me anew? 
would you allow me to confess where I have not been the person I should be? I acknowledge it. Metanoia, turn. Change your thinking. Lord, fill me so that I can live my life. You live your life through me. I gotta go on. Excuse me. But salt is not also useful. It's also different. I didn't know this. Salt can flavor and preserve only because it has a different chemical nature from the substance it penetrates. When it loses its flavor, its distinctive character and chemical composition, when salt stops being salty, it's worthless. Salt is not attractive, good, interesting, or valuable. And Jesus said, if you're not salty, you just, you just become what people walk on. And oftentimes Christians feel we're getting walked on. Why? Because we're not salty. We need to be useful. Does that mean we need to do more? No. We need to be connected to Jesus. Yesterday in the funeral, there was this, you know, obviously when a young person dies, there's, there's so much emotion. And I just sat and just tried to look at it. And it's so, so strange, you know. We, as I just looked out at the congregation and looked at those in the lobby, I, I, could, I would, in my mind's eye, say, Lord, help me to see those who are salty, those who carry flavor, those who, those who bring something different. And Jesus talks about that even more as the passage goes on. Let me just jump ahead. And Susan, may I have slide number, um, number six, please? So in, as, the, as, the, as the passage continues, and I'm just going to focus on salt, we need to be useful. We need to be, we need to be tasteful. We need to be something who adds to. What did Jesus say to those who, these anavim, these people that a king, he said to them, an eye for an eye, chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, give them the left. Why? Because we're salt. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, you have heard it said, love your enemy and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus, but I tell you, you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because we're salt. Because we're light. How do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven. How? Why? Because we're salt. Interesting, someone told me this yesterday after the funeral. They were at a local store and something was happening in the store uh, and uh, she, this person went to, uh, with two people came around and they just said, can we just pray the Lord's Prayer? And so in the context of a large store, two people, and they were social distancing as, as appropriate, but in the situation, they just began to pray. They began to pray, our Father who art in heaven. When they opened their eyes, there was a group of people all standing around over what was a difficult moment that was touched because two people were salt. They were light. Jesus talks about treasures. Don't store up your treasures on earth when more moth and rust. Put your treasures in heaven. Why? Because when people see us living for the kingdom, which is to come, and generous now, what are they? We're salty. How about, don't worry. 
Look at the flowers. They don't worry. And then the one that just strikes me in this season, chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you'll be judged. In the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And so we're asked to be people of salt and light. Let me move toward a conclusion, if I may. Let me just, can I just get some feedback? Is this making sense? You follow me okay? Okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me try to, I'm, I'm, now 12 weeks, I'm coming full circle. We talked about living, flourishing in exile. And I want to give you a word picture. So this week, uh, someone gave me a book called Into Thin Air, which is a description of the, the single day when the most people ever died trying to climb Mount Everest. And so I read the book. It's a very interesting book. Just the, the, the feats of human endurance and everything are just crazy. But I, I, I took a different angle of it. And my angle got different because I thought, okay, here are very gifted women and men. If you want to, I'm, this book is a bit old now, it's 99. But in 99, if you paid $70,000, you could go on an excursion to climb Everest. There'd be Sherpas and guides and all that. There'd be tons of oxygen canisters, all kinds of everything. As I read all the descriptions on the day when the most people ever died at one time, I was struck by how small these very gifted women and men are. The best of equipment, the best of guides, great Sherpas, all kinds, everything. And very few people can actually climb. And my mind shifted from the people to the mountain. Jesus says something interesting at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says in chapter 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds his house on a rock. The COVID comes. The election comes. Social unrest comes. Broken relationships come. The winds blew and beat against it, that house. Yet it did not fall because its foundation was the rock. And then Jesus said, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who builds a house on the sand. COVID comes. Racism comes. Elections come. The winds beat blew and beat against that house and it fell to the ground with a crash. What are you building your life on? Can I have the picture, please? So as I thought about it, may I remind all of us kingdom of God, representation, is never in trouble. The kingdom of God is unshakable, unbreakable. And we who are living in this exilic moment are asked to build our life on the rock. Yesterday at the funeral, I was again struck, talking to people throughout the week around this, how the foundation is what holds us, the foundation is from which we live, and because we have a firm foundation, we can be salt and we can be light. This is in my prayer for us throughout these last 12 weeks, that we would increasingly be a people whose light and salt points others to Jesus. And may I just say thank you in so many ways, in so many people, in so many settings. I can celebrate that the kingdom of God is present 
because you are being salt and you are being light. But may I remind you, we are these people because we have a cornerstone. We have a foundation that is unshakable and unbreakable. Would you pray with me, please? We thank you, Lord, our God, that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you that in the midst of all the unique challenges we face, you are not surprised, you're not afraid, you're not concerned, you're not confused. We give you thanks and praise, Lord, that your kingdom comes, it ever comes, it's ever coming. And it's coming with increasing intensity and with greater beauty and with deeds of love and kindness that are making you famous. So we give you thanks and praise on this Thanksgiving week Sunday that we have one who is steady and firm, one who is strong, who loves immeasurably and loves eternally. So with the exiles all over the world throughout human history, we say, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.